Christmas, and you might have already noticed that. If not, congratulations for for waiting this long and not realizing it's Christmas time. But it is beginning to look a lot like Christmas, and one of the things that we're going to do on the podcast is we're going to help you get ready. We're going to prepare your heart and your mind and your soul. And the way we're going to do that is this week, we're not going to release just one episode, not just two, but three episodes. All are helping you get ready and get your mind right for what's about to happen. Now, on top of that, what we're going to do is then we're going to give, uh, I, 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 well, give. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a week or so off, and then we'll come back in uh, January. So three episodes this week, and then there'll be a little break, and then we'll come back in January with new content. And each of these uh, episodes will include one of my Advent sermons. Now, before we get to that Advent sermon today, I've got a little mini rant. A little mini tiny rant. Uh, got a uh, ton of feedback uh, from people about the uh, deconstruction rant. And I just want to say thank you for, for people from literally all over the world that I heard from. Um, you know, I appreciate my listeners down under in Australia. And I appreciate my next door neighbor, Carl. Shout out to Carl. Thanks for the, uh, the love for the deconstruction podcast. Um, so uh, I really appreciate that feedback. And uh, it, I'm, I'm honored that the podcast could be a resource for y'all with that. Uh, so another rant today. First, let me tell you a story. And I want to ask you if you get behind this character. Now, imagine a gentleman, a man from Minnesota, middle-class man from Minnesota, who meets a billionaire woman. He marries her. This billionaire woman comes from a family of great influence and power, especially her father. Along the way, middle-class man from Minnesota gets connected not just to the family, but to the family business. And he finds himself up at the top. And in a moment of crisis, the middle-class man from Minnesota's wife is stretched thin. She's in a vulnerable position, and she needs her husband, the middle-class man from Minnesota, to have her back. But what does he do? In that moment of crisis, he sees an opportunity for his own personal advancement. And so he, proverbially speaking, kicks his wife down the stairwell while he pulls himself up the ladder of success, get himself to the top. Now, if I was to tell you that, how many of you think this is the worst guy in the world? This guy is a monster. He's awful. I would never root or celebrate that. Now, for some of you, you know exactly the story I'm describing to you. And what you would tell to our listeners who are just aghast at how you could support something like that is, well, you don't know the rest of the story. You don't know the context. And the power of this sort of new genre of television known as the anti-hero is that there has been a succession of character after character that are terrible people. Like that you know the story and you go, yeah, this person is awful, yet we find ourselves rooting for them. And I think there's a bigger point to draw from the way that we've found ourselves rooting for drug dealers like Walter White, or maybe you watch the show about Pablo Escobar, uh, like I I have once, uh, a couple years ago I was watching the show, I think it was Narcos maybe, and Pablo Escobar's story is there. Now, I've, I've, uh, I read a book uh, maybe a decade ago called Killing Pablo that kind of tells his story. And so I had some familiarity with it, but I found myself like actually rooting for Pablo Escobar, even though I know he's an awful human being who did terrible things. But the power of these shows is that if you know the story, 
if you get the context and you see enough seemingly redemptive qualities, or at least maybe one or two, given enough time, you might actually find yourself rooting for someone who's not that good of a person. Now, the flip side of this is, if you don't get to know anything about someone, they might be a good person, but you'll never root for them. If you, the point is this, if you spend enough time with a, one of these bad people through TV or film, you might find yourself rooting for them somehow. But the opposite is true. There are good people around you that if you don't spend the time to get to know them and to understand them and to hear their story and to know how they got to where they are and why they act the way they do, you might never root for them. The power of narrative is that if you get to know someone, there's something in us that just desires connection. That if you are close enough to someone, you develop these empathetic feelings for them. And if there's anything that's lacking in our modern world that we as people of faith have to navigate is this absence of empathy for one another. We've gotten to the point where if you disagree with us philosophically, or theologically, then we just get rid of you. And instead of rooting for a good person that if we just got to know, we could see it in them, all of a sudden we just categorize you as a bad person because we don't want to get to know you. That we draw these lines so quickly that divide us from each other. Because in our modern world, we love categories. We like in and out. We like good and bad. We like right and wrong. And all of a sudden, what we end up doing is that we lose the ability to have the empathy for others in real life that we do for bad people on the silver screen. That I'll root for a bad person if I binge the show about them on Netflix. But in real life, I'm not going to get to know you if you disagree with me on one or two or three different issues. We've lost the ability to have unity with each other. And as people of faith... This is impossible for us. The real, like, I, I love the Lord's Prayer, the, the Our Father Prayer. It, it's one of my favorite things. If you've listened to the podcast for any length of time, you know that's something that, my, that me and my daughters, like, we, we do a lot. But the real Lord's Prayer is in John's Gospel. In John 17, this is the Lord's actual prayer before he goes to the cross in John's Gospel. And his prayer includes a section for those who would believe, which means it's the prayer for you and me. And in his prayer, Jesus says, I pray for those who would believe that they would be one as you and I are one. Jesus says, just as God the Father and God the Son live in unity with each other, my prayer is for those who would believe that they too would be unified. And in a world that is so comfortable with divisions, we have to be people who work towards unity. And if there's anything that I strive for personally, is to bridge gaps that seem to divide people of faith. One of the, one of the things I, I love uh, that we've been able to do at our church is uh, we have actually hosted um, an Acts 29 church in our building for the last eight months. And so uh, two weeks ago, uh, my friend Pastor Tori, who's a pastor of this church, preached for us, and last Sunday I preached for, for his congregation that meets Sunday afternoon. And one of the things I love about that is that in the last couple of years, we've had an Episcopalian preach for us. We've had, you know, a Calvinist church planner, Calvinist pastor preach for us. And there's been times and seasons in my life where I never could imagine worshiping with either of those groups of people. And what's awful in hindsight is I now look back at the blessing that I have gained from each of these different traditions of Christianity. 
specifically with this Advent series, the author I've been reading the most as I prepare for this is a Reformed theologian uh, named Fleming Rutledge. And her Advent uh, book, which came out a couple years ago, uh, has been an extremely valuable resource for me as I'm writing these sermons. And so if you, if you listen to these sermons over the next uh, couple of days, there's a heavy influence by Fleming Rutledge. Now, side note, she doesn't do interviews anymore because she's uh, taking care of um, uh, her husband, who I believe uh, has some medical complications. And uh, she's real nice and, and uh, conversing about that, but uh, otherwise she would have been on the podcast talking about these sermons that that, uh, that I love so much from this book. Um, but the point is, like, there, there's so much that I can gain from different traditions. And so instead of all of a sudden having to divide in and out, we learn to say, is this a reflection of what God wants for me? And that this is something that I can learn and, and gain something that their tradition and their strength and their tribe um, has to offer. And so one of the things that especially has been meaningful to me from this uh this content from Fleming Rutledge that you'll hear in this sermon uh, that I'm playing right now and the, the next ones over this week is her her ability to connect this Advent season that it's not just about re- remembering December 25th, but it's ultimately about remembering that if God came one time 2,000 years ago, then God can return to the earth again. So Advent isn't just about remembering what happened 2,000 years ago. It's about preparing us that one day God will return again. So if God came in the person of Jesus 2,000 years ago in Nazareth, that we trust that that same God can do it again, one day again. That's been a huge blessing. That's one of the main angles you're going to hear in this sermon and in the other sermons I post this week. But all that wouldn't have happened if I wouldn't have been able to develop empathy and understanding uh, for people who view God's providence different than I do. If I would have just said, you know, Calvinists, they're done with, I'm done with them. I, I, I don't agree with them. I don't want to listen or learn from them. Um, I, I wouldn't have had what I had to, to share in these sermons. So uh, all that to say, listen to someone. Try to gain understanding for someone. Try to get some empathy for someone who's different from you. And what might happen is you might be surprised that God might show you something that you need to hear. It's definitely happened for me, and I hope it happens for you. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for listening to the show. And uh, here we go. Here's uh, Advent Homily. It is that time of year when you start to hear the songs and you start to see the lights. You start to see the advertisements in the stores. You start to hear the talking heads using it as a way to further the points which they were going to make anyway. It's that time of the year, the most wonderful time of year. It's the season leading up until Christmas. And you see the signs all around you. The lights, the songs, they're all a cue that that something's happening. It's a sign that something's going on. And one of the things that I love most about this season is some of the signs that our beloved churches around this wonderful country start to put up to let you know. And it doesn't matter what tradition or what flavor, they all have their own unique little signs that say the same thing. Let me show you some of my favorite Christmas signs. Uh, Here's the first one from a nice Baptist church. They tell us, we're the only people forgiving enough to tolerate your horrifying rendition of Silent Night. Nothing says friendly like that. Uh, So that's the Baptist version. Let's go a little bit higher church. Let's go Episcopalian. (laughs) We can smell the eggnog on your breath. Don't make any scenes. I feel like they've been drinking some eggnog before they made that sign. Okay, so if that's not good enough for you, you want a little bit classier, let's go all the way to the Presbyterians, and this is what they say. 
Christmas Eve communion wine, 1986 Chateau Mouton, Rothschild Polyak. So, if you're classy enough to know what kind of wine that is, we need an extra 20 in the collection plate this week. <clears throat> but whether it's Baptist, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, or whatever flavor of Christianity, these are all signs that something's happening. And in Jesus' life, there are an abundant amount of signs. At the end of John's gospel, it tells us this about the signs that Jesus performed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that through believing, you may have life in his name. John calls all the miracles signs. And these are signs so that you know who Jesus is and can experience the resurrection and experience the life. But the first sign that Jesus performed was himself. In Luke's gospel, chapter 2, scripture tells us, this will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. The sign of Christmas is that something's happened and that something will happen. In this season leading up until Christmas, what many Christians call Advent, uh, we're going to pause our series going through the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll pick back up in January. But we're going to spend these four weeks looking at the signs of Christmas. And we'll be reminded not just of what happened, but we will be reminded of what one day will happen again. Uh, So as we begin the series, we're going to read from Matthew chapter 2. If you're physically able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word, and while my voice twin, Jesse, reads this for us this morning. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, and we have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judah, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to be shepherd, but shepherd my people of Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me words that I may go and also pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, out, and there ahead of them went the star they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When When they saw the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Amen. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Matthew is one of the four Gospels that tells the story of Jesus' life. And in Matthew's Gospel, it's written for a a Jewish audience, those who are part of God's story in the beginning in the Old Testament. And to a Jewish audience, they hear that story and there's like red flags going off all over the place. 
Because they know something's not right about what's happening in this story. So we get this account of these visitors. We can assume that they're illiterate, probably royal dignitaries that have traveled from the east. And they show up because they see a star. Now, uh, let's go back to verse 1, please. Uh, What these people were referred to as is is wise men. We assume based on the gifts that there's three of them, but the text doesn't really indicate the number of people there. But this word translated wise men is an interesting word. It's used elsewhere in the book of Acts, and it's translated a different way. In Acts 13, the same word, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Patmos, they met a certain magician. It's the same word translated magi. And so we have this group of people that have come from the east because they saw a star. Now, the star had messianic undertones to it. There was a revolt that happened in 132 BC, some 132 years before Jesus' birth. And the leader, Bar his nickname was Son of the Star. So in Jewish thought, star had this messianic uh, undertone to it. Like, this is going to be the person if you see the star. But following stars is a vastly different thing. It's far closer to this idea of, of magic. Now, anyone in this room who is a fan of Harry Potter has been told by someone on Facebook that you shouldn't watch that because it's magic. The Old Testament texts are not too kind to this kind of magic, not Harry Potter fantasy make-believe stuff, but real magic, as they called it. And to be what these wise men were probably isn't magicians, but astrologers. And astrologers weren't too well-received either. Uh, There's a text in the book of Isaiah in which astrologers are mocked. Hear the words of Scripture. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries, with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many consultations. Let those who study the heavens stand up and save you. Those who gaze at the stars And at each new moon predict what shall befall you. Isaiah is mocking them because they all know astrology and magic. It doesn't work. And that's why God prohibits it. And and so you have this story about the birth of Jesus. There's a star. These people from the east where astrology comes from make their journey all the way to the birthplace of Jesus because of a star. And the original Jewish audience is going, wait a minute, this, this isn't right. This is what's supposed to be happening. This is the equivalent of that cop show, which you've seen one of the like, billions of iterations of the story. Where you have this one cop who's been on the force for decades. He's grizzled, doesn't follow the rules, and he has like, this young partner who's just fresh out of the academy. And they go do something, and the fresh out of the academy, like bright-eyed, good, goody-two-shoes person says, oh, you can't do this. But the grizzled old detective doesn't pay attention to the rules. He busts out a window, goes to the door, and all of a sudden finds like the little kid who'd been kidnapped and saves the day. And he walks out and goes, here's your warrant, and throws the kid to the other cop. Hypothetically speaking, of course. It's a story of the person who doesn't follow the rules, but in the end, it gets you the right outcome. This is a story like that. It's people following stars 
to get to Jesus, even though everyone who was from Jesus' family would say, hey, you're not supposed to be astrologers. But somehow, it still works. Because the sign of the first Christmas is, is a star. Because God is wanting to call any and everyone home. And God doesn't care what God has to use to get you home. God just wants you home. Even if it means using something that seems to be a little bit out of bounds. Because God just wants you home. Now, Christmas for many of us will be a time of celebrating. And we all know the best Christmases, whether they are big or they are small, it has everyone that you care for there. It doesn't matter how big, it doesn't matter how small, all that matters is the people you love are all there. And so this Christmas, for some of you, it'll be a chance for people that you haven't seen in what seems like way too long finally get back together. And for others, it'll be a chance that people who haven't been gone long enough will get back together. But you're all together. For some of us, it's going to be new people showing up. New people showing up. Uh, it'll be new for me. Uh, not too long ago, my, my dad, after my mom had passed away, um, a few months ago, my dad has since got remarried. And so this will be the first Christmas with my dad's uh, new wife. And I'm like really happy for him, but I'll be honest, a little bit of a change showing up and seeing uh, my dad married to someone new. It's a bit different. Um, I kind of have like some smoothing over of things that I need to work through. Uh, one of the first times I, I met my dad's uh, new wife, wherever my brother's place. And uh, so I go to my brother's place and he has on the counter this bag of... Um, Keto chocolate almonds. And if you're not familiar what the keto diet is, keto comes from the Greek word for miserable life. <laughs> and I, I'm a big fan of almonds, and I like chocolate, but somehow mixing them together was like really just frustrating because it wasn't healthy or tasty. And so I'm telling my brother how terrible these chocolate-covered keto almonds are. And I'm like, Josh, these are just the worst thing ever. Why did you even get these? Where did you even get these? And he's just letting me go on about how terrible these keto almonds are. And I go, Josh, where did you even get these? And then the whole room point, or watches as my brother points to my dad's new wife. And he goes, yeah, she brought them. <laughs> so somehow, even though he is literally now a redheaded stepchild, I am the bad one in the family. But it's different, and I'm not the only one who's going to have someone new together for Christmas. And some of us will have people we wish were there, and some of us will have people that we don't wish were there. But the thing about Christmas is that, ideally, everyone's there. And some of the, the, the legends that kind of come out of the birth of Jesus indicate the same thing. Maybe the, the legends aren't really accurate, but they get the spirit of what Christmas is about. There's a legend that the wise men are actually three kings. You might have heard a song about these three kings. A king of uh, Arabia, of Persia, of India. And that kind of picture is like kings from all over are here. Now, we don't really know if they're actually kings or not. But it's the right spirit. There's, a, there's another legend about these three magi. That they are three descendants of Noah... His three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. We don't really know if that's true or not, but the legend gets to the point of what Christmas is. Is that people from any and everywhere are here. And the way that God gets them there doesn't always make sense. But 
Like, if, if you're a parent, you get this. Like, you do the same thing. How many of you parents, like, bribe your kids to come home? We'll, we'll give you whatever you want to eat. We'll give you presents. We'll just give you cash. It's not even creative. We're just going to give you dollar bills to get you home. I know one family, like, 15 years ago, they... They had uh, their daughter married this guy, and this guy wanted two big dogs. And so said, you can bring your new husband and the dogs, no matter how like, big they are and how they slobber everywhere. And uh, sure, your, your new husband, he's got a great sense of humor, and he's wonderful and all that. But his dog, sl- okay, it's me. This is what my in-laws did for me uh, to get me home. But it doesn't matter. You, you say, we'll bring whatever you want. We'll bring the food. We'll bring the presents. We'll let you do what you want. We, we just want you home. And as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you as a parent, even though you're evil, you know how to give your kids good presents, so how much more will your Father in heaven know how to do what's right? When it comes to Christmas, the best ones are the ones that everyone is there. So of course, God is more than willing to do whatever it takes to get people to the first Christmas. And God has always been doing this. Like, if you look in John's gospel, there's no, like, description of the actual birth of Jesus. There's no story about wise men or shepherds or a manger. In John's gospel, it's this beautiful poem. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's this beautiful poem of this cosmic description of the birth of Jesus. And the way John tells it, John uses this, this phrase, the logos, the Word. And it describes the pre-created Jesus of Nazareth, through whom all things were created. But the thing about this, this concept of the Logos is that it's not new to Christianity. We find similar things to this, the similar concept of the Logos that is the creative force that drives the entire universe in Greek mythology. Egyptians talk about it, Indians talk about it. There's all these different mythological uh, traditions that talk about the logos. And so John is more than willing to say, well, we'll use whatever language we need to use so you get the story. Because the sign of Christmas is that God is willing to do any and everything to get everyone there. And some of you are sensing there is a star, there's something that's beckoning in me that I need to find some connection. I need to experience this transcendence. I I have this longing for something, and you don't know what it is. And I would tell you it's a sign of Christmas that God continues to use stars to draw people home. That God continues to use stars to draw each and every one of us home. And that's the power of the sign of Christmas. There's a star for any and everyone. But the thing about Christmas and the season leading up to Christmas called Advent is that Advent isn't just about what has happened. In many ways, Advent has multiple layers to it. Uh, Our Lutheran uh, brothers and sisters in Christ talk about um, the three different Advents that there are. There's the Advent of sanctification, the the first Advent, and the word Advent in Latin literally just means the arrival or the coming. And it's the Advent in which Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. The second advent is the advent of sanctification, which is how God meets us in the sacraments. So that God meets us 
in the waters of baptism or in the bread and the cup, which is extremely miraculous when we're using what we're using right now for the sacraments. But there's the third advent, which is the advent of glorification, when Jesus will come again in glory to judge the world. And so Advent isn't just about what has happened, but in some sense it prepares us for what is going to happen again. It's an anticipation. And so during this season, we aren't just remembering what was, but we remember that God has done this, so God will do the same thing again. If we go back to to Matthew chapter 2, what happens when the three wise men, not three, but whatever, when they show up, Watch how it describes what happens. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. At the first advent, what happens is people show up and they kneel down and give him honor. The early Christians had this song that Paul records in Philippians 2, and this is what the early Christians sang about one day what will happen. They said, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. At the first advent, the first incarnation, you have these people from around the world who will bow their knee to Jesus and give him homage. homage. And the early Christians knew this wasn't the last one, but they sang one day everyone will bow their knee at the name of Jesus in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The first Christmas was a sign of what one day will come because God is the God who still puts out stars to invite people home. And it still happens right here and right now. Uh, Some of you know that for the last handful of months, in the afternoon in our building, there's been a church called The Well that has been gathering uh, for their worship services on Sundays. And it's been an honor to have them here for the past eight months or so. And if you haven't seen them or seen signs of them or been around on the Sunday afternoon, you're really missing out. Because it's beautiful to see the way that, that God is using this young church to reach so many young people. And if you haven't been there, actually, I have a treat for you. Next Sunday, I have uh, Tori Mayo, who is the pastor, the founding pastor of The Well, who's actually going to be here and preach for us, because I wanted you guys to get to know Tori, because he's uh, a great guy. Uh, Tori uh, told me a story a few weeks ago about something that happened a couple months ago at their church. Uh, one Sunday, a woman uh, from... Uh, the Middle East, whose first language is Farsi, uh, shows up at our building at 2 o'clock and wants to go to the Farsi service where many Iranian Christians gather. But because she misread what was online and she misunderstood the time of their service, she shows up not at, at the noon time that they're meeting now, but instead she shows up at 2. And so the Farsi service is already over. And so this woman doesn't know what to do, but she sees there's a church service at 2 o'clock here. And so this woman whose main language is Farsi decides she's going to come to the 2 o'clock gathering in this room instead of the Farsi service over in that room. And again, Farsi is her first language. She doesn't know much English. She comes into the service, and during the worship set before the sermon, she's hearing the singing. She's watching people worship, and she has, like, something happen in her heart. Like, something is happening in her soul. Uh, Tori preaches, and then after the sermon, people are praying and worshiping, and she starts to feel something. Now, Tori's mother-in-law speaks, guess what, Farsi, and sees what's happening and, and goes over and prays with this woman who doesn't believe in Jesus. And she says something to Tori's mother-in-law about a foot that she has an injury. 
And so Tori's mom prays for her foot, and then all of a sudden her foot feels better. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a little different from my experience. But who am I to say that God isn't the God who still puts stars up in the sky so that people can experience the good news of Jesus coming to earth? That in our very building, a person who wasn't trying to come to our service, but a different service, finds himself in the third service, but still experiences the same Jesus. Because the stars still end up in the sky in which people are calling, or people are called into relationship with Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but in my years of serving in churches, I don't think I've met many people, if maybe if any people, who've ever found themselves compelled to become a Christian because they lost an argument. Because someone told them how wrong they were or someone backed them into a corner because of their great oratory skills. But I've met many people who've had this sense of something going on inside of them that they didn't understand, that they couldn't explain it, and they wanted someone to make sense of what was going on inside of them. And what I would say is there are many people who come to faith not because someone can argue them into a corner, but because someone explains what God's doing in their heart. It's the reason why Christian publishing knows that apologetics books are almost always read by Christians. They're rarely ever used to actually convert someone to Christianity. Because most people don't come to Christianity because they're argued into a corner, but because they sense something's happening in them and they just need a guide to go, hey, let me tell you, that's the star you're going to. Let me help you get there. Because God is the God who still is reaching out to people. And I can imagine God is maybe reaching out to some of you this morning. That you've had this sense in your soul that something's broken. That something's missing. That you need something that you don't have. And I would just say, maybe just look for, for the star. Because there is a God in heaven who wants everyone to be at the party. And God is willing to do whatever it takes for you to experience that life-changing good news of Jesus. So keep looking for the star. Because stars continue to drive people home. They continue to show people the way, including you. So during this time of year of Advent, we don't just remember what happened, but we anticipate what will happen again. No matter how far the star seems away. The North Star, which is the star I guess it's easiest to see in the sky. The one you can typically see first. It seems like it's so close because it can be so bright. But if you've ever actually looked it up, the North Star Polaris is some 323 light years away. And as we anticipate Jesus is coming a second time, sometimes it feels like it's that distant, that it's that far away. And as we celebrate, yes, Jesus came, but we, we hope that he comes again. It's been 2,000 years. Maybe that's so far away that maybe we just misunderstood. But this is a time of year that we are to be reminded of the truth that God continues to put stars up. And that one day God will invite everyone to be home. During this time of year, many Christians will hear these words from Peter. And so I'm going to read this to you from 2 Peter as a reminder of the hope that we're all invited to hold on to. 
Scripture says this, this is now beloved, the second letter I am writing to you. In them I am trying to arouse your sincere intention by reminding you that you should remember the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets. And the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken through your apostles. First of all, you must understand this, that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and indulging their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since our ancestors died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately ignore this fact, that by the word of God, heavens existed long ago, and an earth was formed out of water and by means of water, through which the world of that time was deluged, deluged with water and perished. But by the, second, the same word, the present heavens and earth have been reserved for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the godless. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. Peter uses these over-the-top apocalyptic metaphors to tell you one thing, that no matter how long it's been, that the star reminds us that God will come again. Because God's desire is that all would have life. And God is patient. God wants each and every one to know that there is a way home. And so if you sense that calling in your heart for the star, that like the magi, the wise men, that you might have traveled a long ways, let me tell you, there is a way for you to find home. So would you follow that calling that you feel in your heart?